You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me today is Jim Matat. Now, Jim is from upstate New York. He is a lifelong hunter. In fact, I think this makes like 51 consecutive deer seasons or something like that. Anyways, I'm excited to hear from Jim, hear all about what New York has to offer, because I think it's very misrepresented in the outdoor community. I think when most people imagine New York, they think of the city, but there is so much landmass, so many outdoor opportunities, whether it's fishing, hunting, hiking, camping, floating, um, just sightseeing. There's a lot to offer up in New York. And so he's going to cover some of that. And hopefully we can dive into some awesome stories from his life as an outdoorsman. But before we dive into that conversation, I've got some really exciting news to share with you. I've been I've been waiting and like bursting at the seams, wanting to tell you guys about this for a while now. But Dan Johnson and I have been talking. We've been talking about potential podcast opportunities, new shows that we would want to come up with, and we have settled on a really cool new show. So we're going to be launching the Western Rookie Hunting Podcast, and it's going to be all about educating people on just how easy and accessible it is for the everyday guy to go even as a non-resident out west and hunt. Unfortunately for me, it took moving out to Colorado and becoming a resident to realize how many opportunities there actually are for non-residents to come and hunt. And so I want to make sure everybody, all of my listeners, anybody who wants to tune in can get that information. We're going to be sharing tips and tricks and strategies and um, gear reviews, things like draw percentages and how to apply for tags, how to put in for preference points. We're going to have a lot of people who have experience in this field on the show to talk about it. And we're going to talk to people who may have just gotten out of their first hunting season out West and they can share some stories of, Hey, listen, I was in the same boat as the listeners. I didn't think it would ever be possible for me to go and chase a mountain goat or an elk or a moose, but with a little bit of research, saving some money here and there, like most people can do this. And 
We just want to shed light on that. And so I'm really pumped about this. We're going to start airing episodes in February, and I hope you guys will join me. Uh, hop on that and listen along. So yeah, anyway, so pumped about that. But for now, we're going to jump into this call with Jim and see what all he has to say about the state of New York. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today, I have got Jim Matat, and he is from upstate New York. Um, we connected on social media, and he he sent me a brief intro about him and how long he's been hunting. And I was like, man, someone with the experiences that Jim has, I've got to get on the show and chat with him. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining me. You are welcome. I'm really proud and uh, very uh, gracious for you to have me on. I appreciate it. Um, why don't we start out by you sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, the, the outdoor activities that you're interested in and kind of a brief history about how, how you got into the outdoors. Okay. Well, I grew up uh, in the country. My dad was an artificial inseminator, which worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So we didn't see my dad much growing up. Uh, he was a very good hunter and hunted a lot. Uh, as we grew up in the country with, uh, you know, we were very interested in, I was especially I had three other brothers. Uh, my dad brought me home at 22 when I was seven years old and, uh, I started shooting and, uh, uh, we had a couple hundred acres of property at that time, which I am still hunting on. And so that was my interest, uh, went into small game and then the big game. And, uh, we always fished, uh, not interested in the outdoors. It was just, uh, Going on, spending a few hours in the outdoors is just such a great thing for me. It, uh, I don't think there's anything more. Uh, people talk about meditation, but nothing like being on the woods itself or spending time outdoors. So everybody should try it. So that's how I started. Involved into uh, deer hunting, which I really love. And I've been on a couple of bear hunts the last couple of years, which have been really great. Uh, but deer hunting has been, you know, we have turkeys, we have everything else, but uh, I got the deer bug real early and, uh, uh it's been real, I've been really successful at it, but th that's not why, you know, I do it. I just love being out there and I just love doing it. So, yeah, that's awesome. So you had mentioned that you've been hunting on that same property. How many years now has that been on the one property? Well, I had my 51st opening day this year, uh, huh. hunting on the property. Uh, you, you kind of, People say they know their property, but uh, these main stands that I hunt out of it, if a little twig falls off, I usually know it. I mean, you just, uh, but I wouldn't hunt anywhere else. It's just, uh, I have hunted on other people's property, but the mainstay is, you know, I love the property and just love the solitude of it and, and just love, uh, love the whole thing of, of deer and uh, learning how they, how, you know, everything works and, uh, being out with the sunrise in the morning, there's nothing like it. Yeah. No, I definitely feel that. There's been a couple different places that have held a, a spot in my heart as far as the outdoor goes. And that's my my main hunting property up in Wisconsin. It's a property that my family's hunted for 30 plus years. 
Um, that's where I learned to hunt. That's where I got to go and sit with my dad, with my uncle before I could even hunt. And I just got to watch them and they got to teach me about deer and it's a small spot. I mean, it's 40 acres. It's right off the road. Like you can hear vehicles all day long. I typically like to be as far out and away from people as I can, but that spot is a spot that, I mean, I'd be devastated if I ever lost access to it. And I think there's something about building those memories and the connections. And when you're sitting in the woods and there's not a lot moving around, you just look around and you can almost visualize all the different encounters that you've had, all the different stories that you um, have been a part of in that one, one spot or that one stand. Yeah. My uncles used to come down from uh, St. Lawrence County to hunt with my dad once in a while. And they were always very successful. And even when I was a little kid, I just, man, I, they'd have to pull me out of the garage. I get away from the deer that rang and it was so, you know, I was so interested in it. I just could not wait to be the guy hanging my own deer, oh, in my own deer in the garage. And it was a great growing up. I mean, you know, just the deer stories and listening to them and uh, being part of that, even when you were a little kid, was, you know, real, real, real important. Uh, it, uh, it was, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, pass it off for anything it was it was great it was a great way to grow up there uh, yeah what kind of uh why don't you share a little bit about the different opportunities that you have in new york because if the listeners are anything like me before i actually visited new york all i thought of new york as was new york city and i'm sure you hear that a lot but the whole state of new york is vastly different from manhattan and once you get up yeah, into new the northern york. part it's it's beautiful yeah I listen to other podcasts, listen to other guys talk about hunting. And, uh, uh, New York State doesn't get a lot of doesn't get a lot of credit, that's for sure. Uh, we're sitting on uh, New York State almost a million white-tailed deer. I mean, we have a tremendous population. I think we're in the top uh, ten in the country of deer herd. Uh, almost a half million hunters, so it's a well-hunted. Uh, the groups of guys that I know. I've known my whole life that our hunters are very dedicated uh, hunters. And, and that is, man, when it comes around the deer season here, it is, it is on. It is, everybody talks about it. And, uh, from bow season to crossbow season to rifle to muzzleloader, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, really good area. I mean, all in New York, the Adirondacks Mountains are here, which get, uh, get a, Actually, they kill two or three tremendous big deer there every year. But we, we kill some big deer here. But our area, if, if somebody gets a 140 to 150 deer here, that's really, really big. So, okay. But we have a lot of deer. But uh, there are no you know, trophies. Any, any trophies, any deer that I've got, it's a trophy today. Uh, so that's how I've always looked at it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. What about, what about the body size on the deer up there? Because I've noticed in... Uh, the different places that I've got to visit or hunt, the body size of deer, typically the farther north you get, the bigger body they get. And I'm guessing that's to have enough calories for the winter as they can't find food as easily um, uh, just to withstand the cold. Do you guys, are you guys looking at like 200 pound deer up there or what kind of body size? Well, I would say our average deer, our average buck or average two-year-old doe uh, here would probably be 125 to 130 pounds. Okay. Uh, you will kill your deer. I sh actually had a tremendous uh, deer season this year, uh, but the biggest deer I killed was late in the year. 
I killed a doe on the last day of the season that uh, hung 170 pounds. Wow. Which for our is, is very big. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the deer in Wisconsin, I mean, we're only, I only live about nine and a half, 10 hours from where I grew up and the body, um, the body size difference from Missouri to Wisconsin is unbelievable. I mean, you're talking the big, big mature does down here seem to be about the same size as the two year old does up in Wisconsin. Um, we, we were out hunting this year and my uncle shot a doe that I had to drag three deer up the same hill in one day. And I was spent, I mean, I was dead tired because they were all big bodied deer and his doe, it dwarfed all of the bucks that we got that season. Um, she, she probably, we didn't officially weigh her, but everybody's best guess was probably field dressed 200, just over 200 pounds maybe. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just cool to me to see all the different species of whitetail, the subspecies and, and how different they can look, how different their body structure or their antler size can be just because you're in a different part of the country. It was interesting of, of hunting on the same property for so long, all the deer, all the bucks that I've killed, I still have all the racks and all the horns and, and uh, everything's mounted that I have. You look at these, you can tell how some of these deers are, are related. Uh, yeah. the horn structures are the same. Uh, you know, the deer are the same and they look, you know, they just keep passing on the same genes and the deer look almost the same. Uh, so it's really interesting, especially when you get, uh, you know, you throw down 50, 60 set of horns and say, look at these and they're related. You can sure tell. I mean, it's uh, pretty cool. It's pretty cool to, uh, you know, see that. And, uh, we have a lot of corn in our area. And so the deer, not corn on my own property though. So actually, uh, other thanks to farmers around us for feeding our deer. Uh, but, uh, they fat and, uh, they've been real healthy and, uh, we haven't really had a lot of lean years. It's, it's been good. Our, we don't get the winners. We don't get a lot of winter kill here anymore like we used to back in you know the 60s and the 70s. So uh, the herd's good. That's awesome. Um, what what kind of horn structure have you seen? Has there been any like patterns? I know you said you can see from, from year to year like the deer are, are related is there anything like really cool or really unique that you've seen? Maybe like a drop tine or uh, a misshaped rack on one side? I am still looking for my first drop tine deer. It's been a long time. I've never seen one here. I would love to have one. Most of them uh, uh, have the same, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, uh, the eight points, especially the, the 120s and 130s, which is probably a, a decent buck here. Uh, the structures are the same. The uh, G twos are about the same. I mean, it's they, they grow pretty much the same deer, uh, same horns. Uh, when a deer does get, you know, four to five years old here, you get some pretty good ones. But uh, there'll be some ragged nine or ten points that people will shoot that are really big. But uh, uh, when I was younger and shot some really big deer i had no money to have mounted at that time so they're just sitting on my floor so. yeah did you would you just like cut the top part uh, of the skull the, off uh, of them actually i do my own euro mounts oh cool uh, now uh, we're back in the day we just yeah we just cut them off and 
I got uh, crates full of them. Like I said, I've got every set since I've hunted. Yeah, that's awesome. We, uh, growing up, my mom would just take a hacksaw and chop the top part of the skull off and wrap it in felt and stick it to a board, put it up on the wall. And now I, I've like fallen in love with European mounts. I don't know what it is about them. Obviously, I'd love to have a bunch of shoulder mounts, but the European mounts, that's there's something like cool and artistic about it uh, to see. I don't know. I, I, I just really like them. I think from now on, I mean, unless it's something something very unique or out of the ordinary, it's probably all going to be European mounted for me. Yeah, I used to have a gentleman do mine and did a really nice job. And I looked at him one night. And, you know, I looked at what he what was involved, and I'd like to do that stuff. So I started doing my own. I've done probably twelve or fifteen since then. You know, they're not hard to do. Uh, I did three at once this year. Boil them all at once, and it was uh, got the process down. I got it shortcutted from what I used to do it, so it doesn't take long. And get a nice piece of wood. You've got a real nice trophy. Yeah. Do you, what, what is your process for doing the euros? I mean, you boil them. Do you do you like pressure washer on a light, light setting and get everything cleaned off or what are your steps after boiling? Well, OxyClean when you boil them is the real secret, putting that out there. So everybody's going to know, uh, you take the OxyClean when you're boiling them. And I think the biggest thing, and people will overboil them, uh, only in about 30, 30 to 40 minutes with a little OxyClean. Uh, once they come out and I do use a pressure washer on them and you know, you're done. I mean, going down to our, uh, local shop where the ladies do the hairdressing, got a gallon of peroxide a couple of years ago. And I used that and, uh, the process is very, very easy. So usually you can knock out a, a head in a, you know, a good hour, hour and 10 minutes. It's done. And, uh, uh, the OxyClean is the secret though. So I'm putting that out there today. So. I appreciate that because I have had a couple successful European mounts. And then I've had a couple that have not been good. Like we just could not get the skull clean to save our lives. And I felt like I did everything the same, but in hearing that you're boiling them for 30 to 40 minutes, I mean, we had ours going for a long, long time. And I don't, I don't know what the total time limit, uh, time frame was, but I know it was well over an hour. And so OxyClean, that, that's going to be a new trick that I'm going to try to use, especially we've been shooting a lot of coyotes here lately. I've kind of fallen in love with coyote hunting over the past five, six days. And so I want to start doing European mounts of coyote skulls. And so I'm going to yeah. try that OxyClean yeah. trick on uh, I've done a, two of the coyotes. I've done a- done a couple of their skulls they work really well uh, we have a lot of coyotes here and let me tell you a quick coyote story uh, i know i've been following you about with your coyotes which uh, i've been going to get out here a little bit but it's been so darn cold here i haven't got out at all uh, got a new rifle set up a new ar-15 set up just for coyote hunting nice but when i first started coyote hunting years ago i didn't know much about it did a little research and read all this stuff and listened to some local guys. I was at a garage sale and I bought a rabbit squealer for about 50 cents one time. So I'm going to use that for coyote call. So a couple of years later, I had nothing to do in the winter. I picked up my rifle. I went up on our property, got into one of my tree stands. Uh, I had my deer rifle with me, got the squealer, uh, hit the squealer. Five minutes later, a coyote come 40 yards. 
I shot him. I said, man, how easy is this? <laughs> but that's the only one I ever got that. Place. Yeah, it's funny. You can have you can have a coyote that'll come in. Like the other day, I had one that came in. Or actually, I had two that came in in less than a minute. I mean, we set the call up, and the first time that I've really had an electronic call work well for me was this past week. And since then I've had it work three times, um, three consecutive hunts, five coyotes total. But me and my buddy Brad set up because he had been seeing coyotes in his yard during the day. And I was like, dude, you've got a dog, you've got chickens, you've got pigs, you've got a small kid. Like we've got to take care of these. So we went out, set up, and we set the call up, went and found a spot right in front of this big tree. And we sat down, hit play. And within a minute, we had two coyotes come in. And so I've seen it work to where you'll sit for one minute and have coyotes come in all the way up to five hunts in a row. You think you do all the same things right. You make sure the wind is right. You've got motion that they can see from a long ways off. And Coyotes are just finicky. I say they're the easiest and hardest animals to kill out there. Well, we do with uh, most of our deer gut piles. I like to leave them strategically by my tree stands. And uh, the way it is now, you come back in a day or two, they're all gone. That's how fast they're out of the woods. I mean, they just clean them up 100%. Oh, yeah. We've seen that too. Like you shoot a deer, you dump whatever's left of the deer carcass out in the field or out in the woods. Um, I know lately they've been asking to take them to a dump station. I don't know if you have uh, CWD issues up by where you guys are, but we've had them really bad both in Wisconsin and now the county I hunt in Missouri. This was the first year that they tested positive for CWD. So they have dump stations that you can take the carcasses to um, so that the bone, spinal tissue, brain tissue isn't out in the field anymore but we used to just throw the carcass out and then you could sit there and you'd watch probably 30 different species of animals come into it between squirrels. I've seen squirrels come in and gnaw on bones from a deer, um, crows, hawks, eagles, owls. Then you've got, I mean, raccoons and possums and skunks and, and coyotes and bobcat. I, I just, I would always like putting a trail camera up over a carcass and just seeing all the different things that I get on that both day and night. Yeah, we're, we're lucky that CWD has not hit New York State right now. I uh, just was reading, I think, from, from the DEC yesterday. Uh, they do have tested. Nope, there's been no tests, none positive in our state. Uh, I'm sure eventually it's going to get to every state, but right now we have none. That's so good. there's really not, they're not doing anything special for them. Uh, but you talk about bobcats. Uh, we our bobcats have moved in our area in the last few years, and I've been lucky enough. We have a couple that live on our property, and I get to see them. And, and what a great animal it is to see in the woods. I mean, they're just I just love them. Uh, yeah, bobcats are cool. I've had I've only had one I think one real encounter with a bobcat in the wild. I mean, I've got them on trail camera quite a bit. But I got to see a bobcat cub in the, I was driving down past my hunting property and I looked out and there was one It ended up running across the road behind my car after I had passed by. But I, I remember this past year I was looking through trail camera pictures and it's always a treat to see bobcats 
even on even on your trail camera, especially if you have it on a video setting. And I was laying in bed checking my trail camera cards and my wife was sitting next to me and I was like, oh my gosh, babe, you got to check this out. And she looked at it. Well, she she's not super familiar with where I've got my camera placed. And so she couldn't tell the scale of the animal. But in the in the image, it looked like a huge cat. And she's like, wait, what is that? And where is that? And I told her it's a bobcat. It's out on the property. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like, we used to go out there. What if that thing attacked us? She thought it was like an African lion. I mean, the way she reacted, she she was very scared to go back out on the property. Well, that's funny. The uh, I, I, love the, I love the fact that your wife is so appreciative of your hunting also. I think that's great. Uh, my wife is also. She tolerates me. Uh, she don't mind when I leave, which sometimes... It's, little disconcerting in itself but uh last year i had a 30 straight i went out 30 straight days hunting between crossbow rifle and muzzleloader that's awesome uh, i had a 30-day quest and it was oh my god it was great and she's great with it and uh she grew up in the city and she's <laughs> if you got time i got one one quick story i told i told her i was gonna tell i have to have to protect names to be innocent on this story but uh <laughs> I was out bow hunting a few years ago, and I shot this uh, seven point right at dark, double lunged him. So I heard him run off. wasn't sure which, I, if I'd heard him fall or not. So I went back to our house, and my wife said, "What's the matter?" I said, oh, "I hit a deer." She goes, oh, "I'll go back with you. We'll go look." I said, "Okay." You know, and it's not her forte. I got to give her credit for being uh, enthusiastic. So we got dressed and got a flashlight. This was right out of my back door. So we go out and we start with where I hit them and do the blood trail and we trail them up a little bit. And it's a really nice moonlit night, very cold. Coyotes are just baying everywhere. And she's a little worried about the coyotes. So she's standing about a foot from me the whole time. We're trying to find blood. We finally do. And actually the blood ran out. I, I told her I'd give her credit. She actually found the deer. She goes, oh, the deer's right here. That's so awesome. That was nice. I said, well, I got you here. I'm going to help me gut this. Here's the flashlight. So she turned her head, and I'm gutting it. and didn't go too badly until uh, we got to the point where I had to cut the butthole out of it. I had her hold the flashlight. And when she saw what I was doing, I, if there was a divorce court right there, probably the papers would have been signed. <laughs> she tells that story. It's really pretty funny. But she was a trooper, but uh, that was that was her last uh, – trip to the woods with the deer gutting or deer finding but uh, it was a good sport so that's funny <laughs> my wife my wife did end up getting her first deer um not this past season but the season before and she does not do well with blood and i give her a hard time for it all the time because she actually went into nursing school but she can't handle blood of her own or anybody else's and i'm like how how are you going to be a nurse and so I'll come home, you know, I'll have blood on my hands or I'll bring an animal home and process it. And she, she can handle it once it is skinned, once the skin's off and it doesn't look like that animal anymore. She's totally fine. She's helped me, um, cut steaks up and do the vacuum sealing and grinding burger and all of that. But if it is, if it looks like an animal and I'm cutting into it and there's blood, she, she just can't be around it. And so she's come 
quite a ways. I mean, she used to be a hip hop dancer when we first started dating and now she's got a pair of rubber boots and she's fed chickens and she's sat in a deer stand. And so I'm slowly converting her to be a country girl. Well, we have moved about six years ago into a, a little development down here outside of Norwich. And uh, uh, there's like 10 or 12 houses. And the first year I, and my son's come over to look at it. And my youngest son says, Dad, you know, I'm sure this is probably the only deer that's ever been in a garage anywhere near this neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, he was 100% correct. We've uh, we've slowly worked that in. Yeah, that's awesome. We've had we've had plenty of neighbors that have kind of given us a funny look, like cleaning deer, or ducks, or geese, or turkeys, or whatever. But for the most part, people are pretty understanding. I've noticed that if you're if you're online, everyone's got something to say. But if you're in person, most of the time you can have pretty good conversations with people, even if they don't hunt or maybe even disagree with hunting. And so, um, that's been, that's been good to see, but I've got a question about being in New York and hunting. I mean, obviously a huge amount of the population or a lot of the population of New York is in the cities. And so have you get, have you noticed a lot of legislation changes or, um, regulations that have been affected because a lot of people voting on them are from the cities or are you guys still pretty protected as far as uh, the outdoors and hunting and fishing rights go. As far as the outdoors and hunting, we're, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, I won't say that again. I won't get into the rest of the legislature that would uh, get affected from New York city. Uh, but would they, these rural counties uh, like our County only has 47,000 people and it's a big County. Uh, we have more deer and more cows and people. Uh, but they've uh, they have left us alone on that pretty well. Uh, things have changed in the water, waterfowl. It's what's really changed. I know you're a big duck hunter, waterfowl hunter. Uh, when we were kids, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, we had a three-day goose season. And if you shot a goose, you got your picture in the paper because there was no geese here. But right now, uh, this... Uh, Central New York, our part of the state, or Buffalo, Rochester, all those areas are a hotbed for ducks and geese. Uh, our geese don't even go south anymore. Uh, we have millions now. We had none when we were kids. So that's been a huge uh, uh, thing. You know, DEC has worked hard to get us, you know, better hunting now. And they certainly have. You know, they've done a good job. You know, yeah. no, everybody complains about them here and there. But the overall, they've done a pretty good job. Yeah, do you, have they done a lot of habitat improvement? Um, do you know what it is that they credit the population boom to? They don't say so much of habitat here. I guess understanding where, where our our uh, geese come from in Canada and on the flyways, that's where the improvement has been. Okay. And we have basically reaped the benefits of uh, somebody else's work. And uh, they have came here and... Uh, you know, I remember never seeing a snow goose till about 10, 12 years ago, you know, but now, you know, you'll see flocks. I live by a small little pond here, not too far from me, and, and uh, it's just constant geese all fall. And you'll see big flocks of snow geese come in there where 
you know, 15, 20 years ago, you never saw any. There was, there was no snow geese here. So they did a great job as far as that. So, yeah, that's cool. It must be, it must be like nesting and hatching grounds up in Canada that they're doing a lot of work on or something. I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories of there being a lot more birds, obviously in the past 10 years. And there were quite a while ago. I have noticed though this year and, um, in the past couple of years, it seems like they're not making their way as far South as they used to. It's, but like this year we've, ha- we've hardly had any birds up until I think late December, we started seeing birds down here. And normally it's the opposite. Normally they're all passed through by now and we don't have a good late season hunt, but it just started getting, uh, getting hot as far as duck activity goes here the past couple of weeks. I was up, uh, took a drive up to, up to town next to Sherburn the other day. And there's, there's a river that doesn't freeze over. And I stopped and took some pictures of, uh, there was probably a hundred Canadian geese on it. And there was actually quite a bunch of mallards out there too. And this is just a couple of days ago. So those, those, uh, you know, they just stay here. They don't, uh, they don't migrate like they used to. It's, it's really, really fun to see them. I mean, uh, so, you know, we got a very good uh, number of geese and ducks and a lot of guys hunting too. So yeah, that's good to have. That's awesome to see. Um, and it, it's crazy to me that you keep birds there locally all throughout the year, because the other day you sent me that video of you going out and I think you said it was like 21 below. Yeah. And you threw the water up in the air and it crystallized before it hit the ground. And to think that those ducks and geese are surviving outside in those temperatures blows my mind when they could, you know, fly south and get to Florida and have a much more enjoyable winter, I would guess. Yeah. I come down through uh, outside of town the other day by a cornfield. The guy hasn't cut the corn. He left it up there for deer and everything. And there was probably at least 300 geese on this field. Oh man. Have you, have you gotten into waterfowl hunting at all? Just when I, when I was younger, when I was in my teens, early twenties, uh, we did. And we get uh, maybe two or three geese a year and a few ducks. And then kind of got out of it for a long time. And right now it's a good time to get back in. Uh, Cause I think actually I'm going to, uh, try to get back into some waterfowl again. I have a couple of buddies that actually uh, do guiding. They guide in New York and they guide out in Ohio too. Oh, cool. Uh, well, they do a very good job. And, uh, and trapping, I remember you talked about trapping. I uh, trapped as a young man. And when I went to renew my trapping license many years ago, I couldn't find my certificate. So I'm uh, in the process of getting my trapping license again. So, oh, cool. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called Bull Elk Beard Oil. If you've spent any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain, in the marsh, or in the woods, you've felt the effects of the wind, the sun, and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention, it smells great, so now my wife can't complain as much after I come home from a long week of elk hunting. Now I need to tell you, I've gotten to know Brian the founder over the past couple months and he is an awesome guy. 
Ryan made sure that all of these oils are made out of clean products right here in the USA. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community, whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions or even helping donate money to cover the surgery cost of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy and he makes an amazing product. So go check out bullelkbeardoil.com and be sure to check out the subscription options so that you don't have to run out of your favorite facial hair product. Plus, you can use the code NOMADIC and get 20% off your order. Yeah, I I want to do that so bad. I think one of the first shows that I watched, it may have been, I think it's called Mountain Men. And there's a guy that was from Maine, if I remember correctly, and he would run uh, a trap line on his snowmobile every year. And then he would fly up uh, way up north in his plane and he had a remote cabin set up there and that's all he would do. He'd run trap lines and a bunch of the guys on that show did it. And I was like, this is, it's just so cool to think that you could become so familiar with animal movement to know right where to put something to the point where they have to actually step in an area that's only an inch wider than their paw. It, I look at it and I'm like deer hunting. I've got to get something with my rifle within 200 yards with my bow within, you know, 40 yards. And that's difficult enough sometimes, but to have a predator that's so alert. I mean, like you watch coyotes and bobcats, the way they move is methodical, but to get them to step in an exact spot and trap them. I just feel like you've got to be so much more in tune with nature and with wildlife to be successful at it. Well, there's no question. When I, like I say, when I was in my teens, we had a bunch of traps in our barn. I knew nothing about boiling traps or anything. I, would, I just took some some traps and went up on our property and, and uh, put a couple around this tree. I saw some fox here the week before, and uh, next day I come out, I had a fox. <laughs> no scent, no boiling, no nothing. And, you know, it just sometimes, uh, you know, the blind squirrel gets nut. So that's yep. pretty much what <laughs> So. I did get a couple of foxes and then uh, I trapped my neighbor's dog and uh, had about a 200 pound St. Bernard in a trap one day. Was oh my kinda, goodness. <laughs> walked up and he's just sitting there and I thought, oh boy, this doesn't look good. And the trap is like on one toe and this, this St. Bernard must have, oh, he was a monster. <laughs> so I had no idea what to do with this dog and he wasn't ground. He wasn't. So I called a buddy of mine, which is the trapper. He was a, he goes, go put a towel over his head, take the trap off his foot. He'll be fine. <laughs> okay, that's, I'll try that. So I go up and I put a towel over this dog's head and I took the trap off his foot and he went home. And, uh, oh, man. For everybody. So, yeah. It's, but I was, I was famous for trapping skunks. Every set I put out, I caught a skunk. Oh, man. What do you do when you trap? I mean, were you trapping them in, in like conibears or were you trapping them in live traps? No, they're all full holds. Okay. And all my fox sets become, for some reason, the skunks like them much better than the foxes. And trying to figure out how to take a skunk out of a trap for the first time. I said, well, you know, I I can't get too close. So I had my 22. So I'll go back, you know, 30, 40 feet and, I'll dispatch the skunks and that'll be easier. Well, I dispatched a skunk 
and the wind blew all the scent right in my oh face. Oh my gosh! I went home, had to bury my car <laughs> for about a week. Oh the no! Always, the valuable lessons. Yeah, everything's a lot. Did do you have any tips or tricks for somebody not only getting into trap trapping, but um, through that and through coyote hunting now trying to process and prepare my own furs and pelts from those animals well one thing i've always been good at i really like that you know i have my house is full of pelts i've got uh, coyote skins and fox skins and deer skins that uh, a lot of them i'll, I'll skin out and get ready and i'll send them out and get a process uh, i do want to do my own deer hide one of these days uh, talk about mountain men show watching that show and, and uh I know Tom, Tom Orr is, Tom is one of the guys from Montana. He does his own tanning. Yep. And he said every animal has enough, you know, tanning in their brain to do the, do the hide. So uh, I've looked into that. I think I'm going to try one, see how that comes out. Oh, we're talking about uh, the uh, coyotes uh, being hunting, hunting so much and observing them and watching where they run and how they hunt and uh, where their dens are. I mean, uh, uh, I've got a really good idea, you know, how the, that, that'll help the trapping a lot, knowing actually where they, how they actually move and where they go. Yeah. Uh, having friends that are very good trappers is a really important thing too, because they can shortcut a few things for you. Yeah. That's a good point. I know, I don't know a lot of trappers here. I think I've got two people that I could go to for some advice and then, I want to still try to get out. I mean, I've only got a little bit left of season here, but I really want to get out and try to trap um, the last couple weeks. Now, the issue that I keep running into is that the property that I want to trap, it's probably 45 minutes away from where I live. And with the schedule I have right now to get out there and check the sets and, you know, to reset them if I do get something to have time for, um, taking care of the animal properly, like it, it's going to be a scheduling, um, scheduling feat. If I can make that all happen. Are you in an area where you have to trap or check your traps daily or weekly yeah. or? Yeah. Every 24 hours here. Well, I started out trapping muskrats when I was young, young man. Uh, that was always fun. Uh, You'd spend all that time and get 25 cents a pelt, and uh, but it really wasn't about money. Then it was, uh, they would fluctuate from four dollars to 10 cents. I mean, yeah. fur price crazy. Uh, most of the pelts that I've got, I've kept, I don't really sell any of them. Uh, uh, so I've got some really good beaver pelts and you know, muskrats and stuff like that. I just enjoy having that kind of stuff, uh, but. It is a, it is, it is a skill. That's for sure. Yeah. I want to, I want to start doing it. And I, I talked to one friend that does it or grew up actually in Wisconsin doing it. And he was like, you, you've got to be really smart about how you go into trapping the mindset you go into it with, because for him, he loved it. He would sell the, he would sell some pelts and make enough to buy more traps. And he's like, that's all I did is I reinvested into my equipment and it wasn't about making money or like, I, I never made thousands and thousands of dollars off it. I just, if I, 
if I caught a couple bobcats or beavers or coyotes or whatever, I'd sell the fur and that would go into me buying another dozen traps. And, um, he's like, if you want to get into it the cheap way, that's how you do it. You start out with just a handful and then you just reinvest the money. And so I don't think it's ever going to be a business for me. Uh, I think it would be more of a hobby, a hobby, um, of passion than for financial gain. So, yeah. Speaking of beaver, the beaver trapping here is really big. Uh, that's another thing. There was, there was a few, you know, back when we were kids and now we have, uh, beavers in all these ponds and small lakes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of nuisance trappers because a beaver can, uh, trap up, you know, flood up a piece of property really, really quick. So there's a lot of beaver trappers here, but they don't bring much. When the, when the prices drop, people stop trapping. So then become more and more beaver. So same with same with the coyotes. Uh, a lot of guys used to hunt them, and uh, but now they're they're not worth too much, and a lot of guys don't hunt them anymore. So it was never about that price for me. I just like to get out there to you know with nature and and just whatever gets me outdoors more is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, me and my buddy Brad, um, the one that I helped shoot coyotes over at his property, we got those two coyotes the other day, and we we skinned them out, and we've been talking about what we want to make out of them because I think I really would love to get a big pair of mitts, like almost up to the elbow, like mid-arm um, mittens that I make out of either a beaver, uh, coyotes, or I want to get a cool hand warmer pouch that I can wear when I'm actually out hunting or or snowmobiling or doing anything out in the winter. And so I think that's, that's mainly what we're going to pursue is getting enough animals to make cool things for ourselves and putting it to use. Um, I doubt we'll ever even send anything to the tannery because he's similarly minded um, to me. And it's all about like, Hey, how can we do this and do it on our own? How can we learn and figure out exactly how to put these animals to use in the best way possible? So I think we're going to do it all DIY and see how that goes, but I'm excited for it for sure. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We have a couple of, well, not a real local tannery, but one right in New York that we'll send stuff to and, and uh, they do a nice job and I have a beaver hat, which is my So anything made out of fur, I really like. So I have a coyote, a uh, couple of coyote collars on jackets, much as some people are chagrin about fur, but no, I think it's awesome. I mean, I've got, I've got a couple pieces like I, I, I did send two deer off, um, got those back, wanted, wanted just a cool rug made out of them. And then I actually made my own Turkey rug. Um, and by that, I just mean I skinned it out, splayed out the wings and the tail feathers and, um, kept the beard on all in one piece. That was a pretty cool experience. But my, my mom's grandpa, he's passed now. I never did get to meet him but he did a lot of war reenactments. I mean, he'd get fully dressed up. He had this big burly beard, a huge mustache, and he became friends with a lot of native Americans, um, through all of these different war reenactments for TV shows or movies. And they actually killed a Buffalo and blessed it and gave it to him, gave the hide to him. And so I actually have that hide and it is amazing. I'm like, I can't wait to, have an official podcast studio at some point, like once we build a house or, or buy a house that has room for it, because I'm going to have that whole Buffalo rug, just, it's going to have to be a big space because that Buffalo rug is gigantic, but, 
Um, it's just really cool to see things like that and see, especially when it was killed traditionally and blessed in a ceremony and, and then given to him. Um, it's a piece that I'll never let go of, even though I had nothing to do with it. It was just a hand-me-down to, to my wife. Well, that's good. You're giving it a home. I've got a, uh, I have a full, uh, full mounted rug bear rug, big, nice black bear on the wall. And I have a full mounted bear. Uh, we, we put the uh, base on wheels and we move them around and, uh, going on another bear hunt in, uh, Ontario in the end of May. So we've had to move it three times since COVID. So hopefully this is going to be the charm. So I looking forward to that. That's a, that's a lot of fun up there. Yeah, that's awesome. I bear hunting is something that I really want to get into. I mean, I want to try it. I've bought a couple bear tags, had no success, didn't see anything. Um, but I hear people talk about it and they say bear meat's fantastic. I want to say that I I've eaten bear burger once or twice. Uh, I mean, years and years ago, and I thought it was pretty good, but but yeah, bear hunting would be cool. You said that you've got it on wheels. I was like, oh man, I would be playing pranks on my friends or my wife with that thing. She'd probably hate me. Um, but that would be the funniest thing to just kind of like have that thing in the bedroom. She doesn't realize it. She wakes up to go to the bathroom and there it is right in front of her. It is scared to scared the hell out of a couple of people that have seen <laughs> it. And uh, once in a while, somebody will bring a dog with them and the dog would just freak out. Oh yeah. How how big are the bears up there? I mean, I've got to imagine that especially going up to Ontario, the the bears get pretty large. If they a 400 pound bear in Ontario is very large. Uh most of them, the one the last one I got was a 3-year-old. He was 260. And that's about average for 3 years old there. Okay. They have a lot of good speed uh you know, they, the, uh, out the place that, uh, we went hunting at, they, they have six, 700,000 acres of land that they lease. So it's a huge, huge track of property. And, uh, if nobody's ever been out into the woods like that, and then they leave you there. And, and I read people getting panic attacks, being alone out like that. And I can see where it could happen. It's, the first night I'm in that stand and everybody leaves and you know, the nearest guy is a mile from you and you're just looking at black woods, every direction. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and then 10 minutes later, a wolf walked right by me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That would be an unnerving feeling. I feel like, I mean, that's when your mind starts to race. Like what happens if that guy that just dropped me off here, like if he has an emergency, what if he, you know, not that I'm going to like just wander off on my own, but what if something happens to him and nobody else knows where I'm at? Um, <laughs> man, that'd be cool. I want to, I want to experience that a couple times in my life being so far, so lost, you know, whether it's by myself, probably it most likely will be with one or two other people, but I've had an experience like that where we were so far away from civilization that there was a, there was a float plane that flew over one time a day and you had to shoot a flare up and it was, it always flew by. I think it was like 1145 or 12 and you shoot a flare up and that's the quickest way you're getting out of there. Otherwise it's like an eight hour drive to any type of hospital or emergency service. 
Well, you know, you're getting a, a long ways up in Ontario when these tiny little towns all had nursing stations and there was no doctor's offices. And every one of them had a little helipad, a little tiny little helipad out front and uh, where they come in and get you. So, yeah. Yeah. Canada is a cool place. I mean, I, I used to go up there with my dad fishing all the time. I've never hunted up there. That's something that I hope to do. Um, but Canada is just, it's so big and people don't realize how much of it is remote. I mean, there's not, there's not a lot of very large cities or metropolitan areas across the, across the country. You find them here and there, but I feel like for the most part, it's wilderness. Certainly is. I love the Canadians. I have a lot of Canadian friends. I worked in a university here and I worked in the hockey program and, not, and almost all our guys are Canadian. So I got to know quite a few of them and then going to I just love their country. They're very friendly people. Uh, just, uh, you were part of the hockey program. Yeah, I was actually worked in the equipment room, and, and uh, so I did all. I worked all the hockey games, and got to know a lot of the hockey parents, and they're all hunters and fishermen, wolf hunters, and uh, just really, really cool guys, and you know, great families. Uh, I, I just really love the Canadians, and we we still keep touch with each other, uh, uh, you know, after thirty years. So, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, um, we couldn't get couldn't get in Canada last fall. We couldn't get there this spring. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the COVID's going to settle down so we can get over there. Yeah. When is when is that hunt planned for? It's in uh, end of May. Oh, okay. So it's spring bear. Uh, I've never been there in the spring, so that'll be new. Uh, the fall bear. I, I guess they uh, they say they see more bears in the spring. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. That's cool. Um, we're coming up on an hour here, but I wanted to find out from you is, is there a hunt that you haven't done yet that you're just itching to do? Like if you could check one thing off your bucket list or the highest, highest hunt on your bucket list, what would that be? No question. Yukon moose. Nice. Uh, I watched Jim Shockey's shows and watched those, you know, watch the different, uh, uh, hunting shows with the moose and just in the Yukon. Uh, I just find that I think if you went there for 10 days, didn't pull the trigger, it'd still be a uh, hunt of a lifetime. I mean, just something about those areas are just, uh, you know, they call, they call them me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that part of the world is, very underrated i mean not a lot of people think about that uh, a lot of people think about going out west and hunting some big game there but alaska or the canadian yukon in my mind if i went there it would be hard for me to come back luckily i've got a wife and kids here that i would come back to but other than that i would probably just sell tell some tell my buddies to sell all of my stuff back here and stay up there but what a, have you thought about how you would want to do it? Would you want to do like a horseback hunt, a fly-in hunt, a float hunt? Well, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, my dad went on a uh, moose hunt many years ago in British Columbia. Uh, and he was heading down on a horse in 50 years and took a 30 mile ride the first day. almost <laughs> killed me. Oh no. So, but, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think flying in would be great into a, into a place. Uh, 
But I guess it depended on the area. I'd be open for any of it. Uh, just to be in a place where nobody else has stood or somebody might have stood there 50,000 years ago and looking at the same thing you're looking at today, I, I find that so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple places in my life like that. And a couple of them actually have been spots where I'm like, I may have been the only person to ever like stop right here and take this view in or walk this path through the woods. And then sometimes I get up to a spot and I'm thinking that and I look over and there's a Pepsi can and I'm like, <laughs> oh, you got to be kidding me. It's a it's definitely a buzzkill when that happens. Yeah, there's, I tell you, the, uh, I, running out of places in the, in the, in the world, but I think the Yukon is still one of them. You can find that kind of, kind of place where you actually can be alone and oh, say yeah. that you've been the only one there. Probably. That's pretty cool. But, you know, I, I have a lot of, I watch a lot of hunting shows and, and, uh, what they, what those guys do and stuff is just so interesting. And, uh, I, I just find that the making and living at it's, you know, better. Yeah. Cause that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a good thing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of cool adventures ahead and a lot of new places to go out and travel to. So hopefully, hopefully there's places like that still around and that we can preserve. And, um, even if, I mean, donating money to these conservation agencies and, different organizations that help preserve wild places it is going to be huge so that, you know, our, my grandkids, their grandkids can all enjoy something like that in the future as well. And I think that's one of the things too, like New York Adirondacks is the biggest park in the country. Uh, it's like three and a half million acres and it's uh, very well regulated. Uh, there's, you know, there's tons of private land too, but uh, they, they have kept it, you know, pretty wild. And uh, they've done a nice job with it. A lot of recreation there. A lot of, a lot of moose population. We're getting, uh, we're getting, I think there's, last I heard it was four to 500 moose in New York State. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Moose, moose are a crazy animal. I mean, the size of a moose, a lot of people don't fully understand just how big they are. And seeing them in person is mind blowing. Like the fact that we have animals that large walking around in the wild here in the United States in, in a lot of places. Now I know Wisconsin has been getting, uh, more and more moose, basically the whole, I would say most of the Northern States, um, on the North border have moose in them now. And then a lot of them actually are dropping down, um, farther, like into the center of the U S I know Canada, even Nebraska, um, the Dakotas have them. And so, it's just cool to see all of these different agencies working together and reintroducing and creating habitat where they can sustain healthy populations of animals that have been gone for, in some cases, you know, 50, 60 years up to 150 years. Yeah. Like Pennsylvania has a really good elk herd. Uh, I know some friends who go there and elk hunt and they've done a great job bringing the elk back there. Yeah. Yeah. I know Kentucky Kentucky, I think, has one of the largest elk herds now outside of the Rocky Mountain Range. Um, it's just crazy to think, like, in if, if things keep going the way they do, there's going to be elk hunting opportunities in most of the lower 48, 
48 states uh, here shortly. I mean, potentially within my lifetime. And so I know Missouri opened up one. There's a lot of different states now, even around Missouri, where you can hunt. I know Kansas had one, Oklahoma, Arkansas. And this is a place where 30 years ago, if you said, you know, they're going to start having elk hunts in Missouri, people probably would have called you crazy. I know. We have a lot of conservation wins, and uh, sometimes the conservation doesn't get a good rap, but uh, they do a lot of good things. Absolutely. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you hopping on the call with me today. Um, I know we've been talking about it for, what, two weeks now, and I'm glad that we finally made it happen. And I want to wish you good luck good luck on your bear hunt. Hopefully everything works to where you can get across the border, go up, and, and finally chase after them again. Um but we'll have to keep in touch. I'll let you know when I'm up in that part of the in that part of the country. Maybe we can get together. I appreciate that, and I will keep you in the loop on the bear hunt. And I know a lot of people will, will probably tell you, "Yeah, come hunt with me." But I really mean from October one to almost New Year's. So absolutely, you could fly into Syracuse for a couple of days. We can hunt. So I'll keep you in the loop on that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That'd be a great hunt. Um, well, Hey, I'll give you a chance real quick to share with the listeners how they can find you, how they can follow along with the things that you're doing and see videos like you throwing water up in the air and freezing before it lands. <laughs> yeah. You go on TikTok. I believe it's uh, big Jim And I think it's the same on Instagram. Uh, keep watching my, uh, I'm just amazed how many people will watch those crazy ass videos, but, uh, <laughs> we'll keep putting them out there. Yeah. I got to say, you and your wife's dancing is getting better, so. Oh, man. I I would love it if we just never did any type of dances. Um, I enjoy the content. I enjoy creating things that hunters can relate to, but I could definitely do without the dancing. I am, <laughs> I am not meant to dance. I've got two left feet, that's for sure. Well, listen, you keep up the great work. You've got a great podcast. Uh, I love what you're doing, and... Uh, We'll stay in touch, and uh, I'll send you stuff, and I appreciate it very, very much having me on today. And, uh, good luck with everything you're doing. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. It was definitely a treat. You take care. You too. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. Man, I had a great time talking with Jim, and I love when I can connect with people, and they're like, dude, you should come up here and hunt. And I wish that that was my full-time job, was just traveling and hunting with people. But that is something that I want to do. I mean, the Northeast is a whole different ballgame when it comes to hunting. I mean, the the views, the scenery, the, the strategies that people use to chase after whitetail up there, it's crazy. And so hopefully I can get up there with Jim and hunt here soon. But I will for sure be using his trick with OxyClean on some European mounts. We've been shooting coyotes a lot lately. We've been trying to um, skin them out. We're going to start tanning the hides. And I want to do some European coyote mounts. I think that would be awesome. In fact, I just got done yesterday with another coyote hunt. It's been crazy. I think in the last six days, we've killed seven coyotes now. Yesterday... We called, and the the call that I've got, the remote for the call, it actually has a timer with how long you've been playing sounds on a specific set. And so we set up, I hit play, and this coyote came in. It was so mangy. I'm talking like, it looked like a chupacabra, right? Like if you look up pictures of chupacabra, 
it's all like not scaly skin but just like dry crusty nasty looks like it had some type of disease and anyways this thing came in with a rat tail um it was just gross anyways we shot it with a shotgun by the time i pushed play on the call or from the time that i pushed play on the call to the time that drew shot it with a shotgun and i was like dude that was insane then I realized I could look down and check the time. It was a minute and 36 seconds. That was it. And we're not hunting a big chunk of land. I mean, I'm talking a five acre, mostly field lot that Drew purchased this year. And so that was super awesome. We got that one. And I'm hoping to uh, continue that streak. I, I think I'm going to set a goal of like 25 coyotes this year. That's my goal. We'll see if it happens. But anyways... I appreciate you guys listening along. I'm super pumped. If you heard the intro, I'm I'm really excited about the Western Rookie Hunting Podcast launching here soon, and I will keep you up to date on that where you can go listen along. And we've got more merchandise coming out. I just got my first round of t-shirts and sweatshirts in, and so we're going to be launching those at the beginning of February as well. Lots of new designs, lots of new logos, and I hope that you guys hop on, take a look at those, and find something that you like. Anyways, until next time, always choose adventure, and God bless.